welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Building the Black Educator Pipeline podcast, the place where we talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educator, activist, dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Shout out to all my co-conspirators out there listening today. So excited to have you back. Thank you for coming and listening to our welcome back episode, our last episode. Um, you know, I'm coming back off of, I guess, maternity leave is what you would call it, <laughs> from having my baby. So we're excited. But today we have council member Isaiah Thomas from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the building. Councilman Thomas is the chair of the city council committee in Philadelphia on education. He was also recently chosen by his peers to serve as the city council's majority whip. So shout out to that brother. He's responsible for driving collaboration and consistency in the legislative body. So we are super excited to have him on today. He's also a long, long time friend of mine, probably going on almost 20 something years now and just been through so much, so much exciting things together. So just a little bit about his history and his background. He worked at a place called Sankofa Freedom Academy, graduated from Lincoln University, um, and also started the Thomas Woods Foundation. And through that, he has put young people at the forefront in his work, which is why I'm excited and honored to have him here today. So whether it's in the classroom, whether it's on a basketball court, or whether it's in City Hall, this brother believes in education, opportunity, and coalition building. I um, mean, he does that through his work, a way to really make Philadelphia a great place for all the people there. So we are shouting out and excited. Councilman Thomas, welcome, brother. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm super excited. I heard the bar is pretty high as it relates to the podcast. So hopefully I could I could I could meet the expectations. But I'm so, I'm so excited. You're definitely going to meet the expectation because you're a real person in the real struggle doing the real work. And that's that's what we do here. We keep it real here and we talk about the real here. So you're going to meet the expectation. You good. All right, I mean, last week, last week we had Dr. Carl on, so you know that's what I'm talking about. That's, 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 <laughs> come on now, that's, that's what I'm talking say. about. You know, it's, it's hard to step in that brother's shoes, but you're doing it. You walking that walk, you talking that talk. Well, I appreciate um, it. I appreciate the invite. Yes, yeah, so I love to. I mean, you were on our podcast a while ago, but I would love to give some of our new listeners a refresher just about you. How did you decide to get into education? Because what people may not know is before you got into politics, you were an educator. So how did you decide to get into education? I mean, honestly, because of Freedom Schools. Freedom Schools is really what put me on a trajectory to want to work with young people, wanted to be of service, listening to your intro, talking about Black liberation. Uh, you know, that stuff was kind of engraved in me since high school. So for me, my time in Freedom Schools really put me in a position to want to be an educator and spend years in the education space, whether it was non-traditional out-of-school time-based initiatives like after-school programming or teen programming or freedom schools or even in traditional academic settings like Sankofa, prior to working at Sankofa, actually, actually Dr. Mama wanted me to get experience like in a school before starting at Sankofa. So she recommended that I take a position at Overbrook High School. Uh, so I actually was at Overbrook before I was at Sankofa and also did a little bit of substitute teaching as well. So you know, I had an interesting journey as it relates to working in the education space. Uh, but Sankofa is really where I honed my skills. I was the dean there, athletic director. And, you know, for me, again, it all started with freedom schools. That's what really wanted me, put me in a position to want to work with young people. And even with the seat on city council, I still do that today. So really, really excited to talk about the future of young people in the city of Philadelphia, as well as um, well, some of the things that we've done in the past. And see, I know you work in Philadelphia, right? But I think that you be limiting your influence and your impact to Philly. 
I think your perspective and your influence and outlook on life could have a, a national impact and a global impact. And I say that because when I think about you and your trajectory, meaning like where you were to who you are now, you know, you're a councilman as Isaiah Thomas. You were like an What's educator, but because you, you're a bull from Frankfurt, right? Like you're just a bull from up the street. Like <laughs> I think that that's important for people to understand and to realize when they're speaking to you or understanding your trajectory, because if you were bull from up the street, right, people wouldn't expect for you to make it to where you are today and be who you are today. But that's the influence. And I love that you say that Freedom School was an influence. Can you talk a little bit about how joining a program like that changed your path in life? Well, Freedom Schools and everybody's story is different, but what Freedom Schools really did for me was it really put me in a position to be around the best and the brightest from across the country. Right. Like that's what he really did. Like, so when I'm in high school, you know, the black liberation component, you know, the academic component, as far as some of the uh, rigorous work that we had to do, of course, teaching time management and how to build a resume and, you know, the importance of going to college, all that because of my upbringing. If it didn't happen there, I think my parents would have made sure it would have happened somewhere else. So it's that part. I think for me, Freedom Schools was great. I loved it. But what really changed my experience, what changed me more than anything was becoming an elevator trainer. Once I became a trainer and it put me like on that national platform to be able to see what other people was doing across the country, but really to learn from the best and the brightest and for people to kind of pour into me and just like make me believe that, yo, Isaiah, you could be anything like that really is like it's it puts a level of, of confidence in you that has a certain balance, right? Because it's not arrogance, especially from the space that we coming from, because, you know, we learn it through through the lens of certain leadership. So you're always going to have that balance of thinking about what does it mean to, to serve and serve in a way, whereas though, as you move up the trajectory, I guess you could say the professional trajectory, the importance of remaining, remaining humble, remaining approachable and keeping the work centered in everything you do. So I think for me, the biggest thing was becoming a trainer because once I became a trainer, I just think it changed my whole perspective on myself, my leadership, what, what I can do, what I can accomplish. And it was really because of other people who kind of poured into me. So that was the single most impactful thing that I went through that really put me on a trajectory to be where I'm in. Opportunity. Somebody gave you opportunity and did mentorship. Yeah, all I that. mean, like, so opportunity, dope. mentorship for sure. But like, actually, Dr. Carr is the person who told me to do it. Like, I remember being on a farm when I was 19, and I, I honestly didn't think it was a good idea because I was so young. But I had been in freedom schools at that point, like six, seven years already. I was moving into the position to be the site coordinator for running our site. And Dr. Carr, he talked to me on the farm one day. He's the person who kind of really put the battery in my back and encouraged me to apply for freedom school. So the opportunity there, recommendations there, support there. But when somebody like Dr. Carr believes in you, the irony of him being on your last episode and this being what we're talking about right now, it kind of it kind of puts you in a position where you feel like something is your call, you know, especially when you're talking about an elder of his statue and somebody who means as much to that space as anybody who's ever stepped into that space. When they kind of tap you, you know, you, it makes you feel special. We have so many educators that listen to this podcast. So, I mean, it's a podcast for educators. So <laughs> hearing you say that and hearing you talk about that, I think it really should ring some bells to people that what you say how you talk to young people really could, again, influence them and really builds belief and confidence, right? And young people to feel like they can go and, as you said, I can accomplish anything. So I love that. And of course, shout out to Dr. Carr. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, absolutely. I mean, teachers got the ability to make young people feel a lot of different ways. And not just teachers, coaches, mentors, those of us 
who are in the setting and have a platform to be able to work with young people. You have the ability to move their emotions a lot of different ways and they might not remember every slogan or every affirmation, but they are going to remember how you made them feel. And if you were a teacher who inspired them, you know, I might not be able to give you the exact words that Dr. Carr told me on the farm when he encouraged me to be a trainer, but I remember how he made me feel. He made me feel like, like this was my calling and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so, you know, I think for the educators out there, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, the young people might not be able to quote you verbatim, but they're going to remember how you made them feel, whether good, bad, or indifferent. And I think uh, for me, not only am I an example of it as a, as a clearly as a former young person, uh, but I still try to do the coaching, mentoring, educating work, even with my city council meds. Um, I probably do it more through sports than any other spaces at, at this phase of my life. Love that. So we move from education into politics. Now, before I get ask you how you get into politics, I'm going to tell the people the funny story about how you and I kind of switch lives. Yeah, it was crazy, right? <laughs> it was crazy in a sense, because that's all I talked about at one yep. point was being in politics, being the president of the United States and yep. going and doing all this other stuff. And then one day he was like, yeah, I'm running for city council. What? And I'm like, well, yeah, I think I'm going to be up with this politics, John, and I'm going to go ahead and get into education. Like we just completely switch lives. But tell people, how did you get into politics? I mean, for me, it started with Freedom Schools, honestly, again, because running in the site actually introduced me to the elected officials who represented the neighborhood that, you know, I was actually running my site in. And so I was introduced to Tony Payton, Maria Sanchez. They were the state rep, the district council person. And eventually Tony, again, the state rep at the time, kind of took a liking to me. And he was actually the youngest state rep in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So, you know, looking at his age, he's just a couple years older than me. and He's doing a lot of amazing things for the community. He ended up hiring me part time uh, just to work a couple hours a week out of his office to be able to lead some special projects. And, you know, clearly we developed a great relationship and I was able to do some things for his office that just hadn't been done before. And he kind of encouraged me to run for office. Um, so that's really where it started was my work in Freedom Schools introducing me to the local elected officials me developing a relationship, organic relationship, nothing, you know, never took a political science class, you know, never desired to run for office. I never really felt like this was something that was in the cards for me. But Tony was a tangible example of somebody who had looked like me, who had came from where I came from, whose background was very similar to mine. And he made being a, an elected official uh, something that was attainable. Not saying that I never thought that I could be an elected official. I never desired to be one. Politics wasn't directly in my face on a consistent basis. And I remember Tony, you know, talking about Tom Corbett and some of the cuts that had been made by the governor, specifically to education. And that being the thing that kind of convinced me to get involved in politics, not just looking at what he was able to accomplish, but also looking at how the governor's decision completely changed the face of what freedom schools look like in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but specifically in the city of Philadelphia. And so that was a lesson for me to, to really recognize and understand the impact that politics can have both in a positive way, watching the resources Tony was bringing in to the 179th district at the time. And then, of course, in a negative way, watching us face some significant financial problems and, and watching the governor choose to balance the budget based on, on the back of education. And that was really one of the most discouraging things I've ever seen in politics. Mm, and I'm glad you gave that example, because I think sometimes as educators, you know, you in your own world, whether it's in your own school, your own classroom, and you really focus on curriculum, student development, like those are the things you focus on. But you've had the best of both worlds. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between politics and education? That was a great example you just gave about I mean, the governor's they're, decision. They're married. And, and I just think that a lot of educators 
we, we tend not to see the layers of decisions that are made that shows that the decision that elected officials make have a direct impact on your work atmosphere, right? And, 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 and when you're talking about direct, you're talking about, you know, capital funding for facilities and schools. You're talking about direct appointments to school board members who choose folks like the superintendent who's then in charge of your climate, culture, curriculum, schedule, and everything else, contract negotiations and things of that capacity. We're talking about the unions that represent the people who work in our spaces who often have an impact on campaigns and politics and things of that capacity. And they also think about the dynamic that's been created between traditional public education and public charter education. That is a whole political dynamic in itself as it relates to people's perception of charter schools and what the future of education should look like in different states all across the country. Education looks very different in, in different neighborhoods of the city of Philadelphia, let alone what it might look like, you know, on the West Coast or in the Midwest or down South. It's, it's just totally different. And so at the end of the day, when you're teaching and mentoring and working with young people, you know, you're just trying to make do with the resources that you have. You're not necessarily thinking about the entire pie, not just the, the direct pie that has the impact on what happens in your facility, some of the examples I gave already. But then there's also the indirect pie that has a huge impact on what young people experience in their neighborhood and in their home on a consistent basis. This is crime. This is poverty. You know, this is their their library being open or not, their rec center being up to date or not, whether or not there's free after school programming. Is it free breakfast? What are they doing in the summertime to ensure that there isn't an achievement gap? You know, these things are not within the jurisdiction of teachers and principals to determine how young people will live outside of the eight or nine hours that they're actually in the school with the educators. And so they're actually married, which is why I'm the chair of the Education Committee on City Council. Um, I try my best to put us in a position to be able to see that marriage on a consistent basis and recognize that the core of the problems of what we have in the city of Philadelphia is predicated around schools, right? We can fix schools and we can make sure that every young person has a quality education, no matter what neighborhood they live in. Now we begin to have an impact on crime. Now we begin to have an impact on the opioid crisis and addiction crisis. Now we begin to put a dent in poverty because people have the tools that they need to essentially effectively enter the workforce. And so at the end of the day, education is at the core of my political agenda. And it's unfortunate when people, especially in the education space, decide that they don't want to be politically engaged. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it, when you decide you're not going to be politically engaged, not only does it not not only does it have a direct impact on your space, an indirect impact on the young people's space, but then sometimes subconsciously you're teaching that to the young people too. You know, we got an important presidential race this year and a lot of people in black neighborhoods, right? You, you, you're definitely questioning Trump. We all heard him on a record and asked somebody for votes. You know, we're not going to act like we didn't hear that. You clearly broke the law. Um, and then at the end of the day, people have a lot of questions around President Biden, some of the decisions that he's made and some of the other issues that he's facing. And People are just wondering, is either candidate the right direction for the future? And when you have those questions, it's important that you not implant that bias on young people because we, we want young people to be excited about the process and the future of being able to participate in democracy. And so at the end of the day, you know, it's kind of like when we talk about having children we like and children we don't like. When you're a good educator, mm -hmm. you kind of recognize subconsciously they're going to be children that you just naturally like. Maybe they look like your little sister or remind you of somebody who is near and dear to your heart. And then there's going to be those children who just naturally bother you. Maybe they remind you of somebody who bullied you or some something about their personality <laughs> that just doesn't fit you, right? And when you're able right. to assess that these things exist and you have these biases, 
you're, you're able to best put yourself in a position to not show those biases in a classroom. I would say the same thing about voting. You know, a young person might start an organic conversation around who to vote for, or which one to be president, or who should be president, and a teacher putting their, their bias out there and their disdain towards maybe both candidates might unintentionally encourage young people not to participate in elections because nothing's going to change no matter who you vote for, right? Like we mm. hear phrases and sayings like that all the time. And the reality is that couldn't be further from the truth. So when schools and students and folks are thinking about the election officials, you told us a little bit about your job at city council and how that works. How much do you specifically and how much do our politicians impact? How much do they have an impact on legislation and the budget? Like what's that role in terms of education? So elected officials have a huge impact on how much money goes to the school district but have no impact on how the school district spends them, right? So at the end of the day, the school district in the city of Philadelphia has about somewhere between six to eight billion dollar deficit as it relates to capital, right? That's just facilities. That's not dealing with curriculum or staff raises or the newest technology. We're only talking about the actual brick and mortar space, six to eight billion dollar deficit that we're facing right now. Elected officials determine how much money goes to that. Uh, the governor of Pennsylvania said that he was announcing $175 million in new capital money to address issues as it relates to physical structures of schools. Sounds like a huge number. But when you put it into context, you know, $175 million for the entire Commonwealth when Philadelphia alone is facing a $6.2 billion deficit, it doesn't put us in a position to be able to put a huge dent in some of the issues that we're facing. And now, part of the reason you're in this situation is because of the funding. When we look at funding and how schools, specifically public education, is funded in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the courts have deemed it unconstitutional, which means cities like Philadelphia have been systemically underfunded in ways that the courts have said is unconstitutional. And it puts us in a position to really ask a lot more questions, right? Should we get some of this money retroactively based on the years and years and years of being underfunded? If we, if you do believe that, should it go to capital? Should it go to operating costs? Elected officials are thinking about these things all the time. When school districts have contract negotiations coming up in school district of Philadelphia, huge contract negotiations coming up next year on top of the f- possibility of facing a deficit. As an elected official, I've already voted to give Philadelphia more money, the school district specifically, than the city has in the history of the city of Philadelphia. So do we give them more money to address the contract negotiations that's coming up? the deficit as it relates to capital? Or do we say we've done our part? It's time for Harrisburg to step up and pay their fair share. So, so many questions are coming up for me out of what you said. One of the questions I have that like burning my soul, right? And I always have this question. And I don't know if you can give me the answer, but it's an honest question. It's Uh a little spicy. It's a little spicy. So we're talking about this deficit, right? We're talking... We're talking specifically about School District of Philadelphia because that's you work in the city of Philadelphia. That's what I know. But... But this is a, a problem nationwide, right? Correct. How do we have school leaders, right? District leaders, superintendents that are making $200,000, over $200,000, right? As it relates to their paycheck, right? A year. But you have dilapidated building and underpaid teachers. How does that continue to go on and on? And the deficit comp- continues to build, but yet and still we have people who come into our cities or come into our school districts, spend five years here getting all this money and then leave and leave us with the same problem or larger deficits. How is that allowed to continue? So the argument, and I, that just 
had a lot of stuff going. So thinking about the marriage between politics and education. So the argument on one side would be, well, how can you address, attract the best and the brightest to do this job, to fix this problem, to pull us out of this tough time if you, if you can't afford to pay them? So that would be one argument. But then the other argument would be, well, if you look at the CEO of blank, blank, blank charter school, that CEO makes this amount of money, which is more than a superintendent who's in charge of the entire school district of the city of Philadelphia. And the superintendent deserves to make that money. And we should provide more regulations for charter schools. Probably some truth to both sides of the narrative, right? But at the end of the day, when you look at uh, what educators make, yes, teachers are severely underfunded, but would uh, cutting the superintendent's salary by $75,000 really put you in a position to address that problem? You know, the type of salaries that people make that are in leadership of school districts is a drop in the bucket to the type of money and the type of revenue that they're in charge and a job that they're expected to do. If you are the superintendent in the city of Philadelphia, you're doing your job the right way. You deserve to make over $250,000. Police commissioner does. The mayor does. Everyone else does. There's so many high level people. You, The fire commissioner does. So many people make the salary that a teacher uh, superintendent makes and, and is one that's negotiated with the city that I don't necessarily want to knock how much they make because when I look at it in comparison to other sectors of government, it's on par, in, in, in my opinion. I think the problem that we have is that education isn't funded in ways that other departments are. So yeah, the superintendent might make the same as the police commissioner, but the, the police budget is, is pretty big when you look at the number of staff that they have and when you look at what their responsibility is and you compare it to other areas, whereas the, the school district budget is pretty bad when you look at how much we get for people. I'm not saying police budget is great and fire budget is great because the reality is I know their budget isn't great, right? Like the police budget is probably about a billion dollars and, you know, 90% of that money is actually towards staff and salary. And, you know, one could argue that we could spend more money on forensics and other new technology to be able to solve crime and collect evidence. So these are the things that we have to balance when we're thinking about what it means to be an elected official. And as somebody who really cares about education, I'm always going to decide to shift that dollar, shift those resources towards that way. But you got to think education don't pull high. What pulls high right now, Philly at least, and in most big urban areas across the country, is crime. Crime is the thing that pulls high. So as a politician, am I going to fight the Put more money into police or diversionary services or whatever it is that you feel like will address the crime issue? Or are you going to get to the root of the problem and say, well, if we fix our schools and if we make sure young people have positive things to do all year round, you're naturally going to see numbers in crime drop. That don't pull high. It also doesn't offer a solution right away. It's more of a systemic solution to a systemic problem. But at the end of the day, you know, that's how I think and that's how I move as it relates to addressing these issues. So I know that was like and, a tangent to go off of based on like, tangent. you know, superintendent salaries, but you know, it's these are the these are the type of things that we weigh all the time when we're advocating for or fighting against something. And I think that the way you're thinking about it is in fairness, right? Right? It's in fairness, right? Like these people deserve to make money and it's on par with salaries and what governments are making, right? But of course, if I'm the little person, right, who is going into a dilapidated building or who is in an underfunded school or there's a teacher shortage and we can't afford people and teachers and stuff, like I am getting the rough end of the stick. <laughs> I was doing that rough end of the stick at one point. 
Yes, right? On that rough end of the stick, while essentially these people are living six-figure lives. So sometimes that's a really hard pill to swallow when you look back at our children and look back at how to fix the issues that that you're talking about. But most of the people who are living those six-figure lives was on that end of the stick. And if there's no room for growth and an opportunity for advancement, and even the opportunities that we have because they're limited, it deters a lot of us away from the classroom. Look, I wasn't mm-hmm. on city council. I could tell you firsthand I wouldn't still be in the classroom. I just wouldn't. Because of the money. I mean, it's 100%. Mm-hmm. I have three kids now. You know, making, you know, $55,000 a year with three kids is totally different than making $55,000 a year with a two-person household or a one-person household. So at the end mm-hmm. of the day, just based on, you know, the way the system is set up, yes, we have to pay teachers way more. If you really think about it, most being a teacher is not enough revenue to just work one job. If you're mm-hmm. a teacher and you have a family, you got to, what, coach a sport, do some tutoring, teach summer school. All that is, that's not part of your job. That's that's the yes. second job. That's other stuff. And if you think about it, most teachers have to do that just to be able to earn a mm-hmm. quality living for themselves and their family. So taking money from the principal or from the superintendent or from folks at 440, you know, I'm not saying we should be top heavy. I'm sure that if there's, if there's ways we can be more efficient, I'm always going to be for that. But I do want people to be able to ascend to a certain place. And I think we can have those positions up there while increasing wages for folks whose wages aren't necessarily good. We just did it with the Unite Here contract. Unite Here, for those who don't know, I know national podcast, so it's different. That's the union that represents a lot of our NTAs and food care workers and climate staff people, right? Like we just raise their wages, right? So we want to do the same thing with building engineers, teachers, administrators. We want it to be a worthy profession like other professions. There's no way a police officer should start at 68, you know, $75,000 a year going into academy while teachers starting at 45. Mm. That just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. I would agree with that. So I think that there are... Two other things that come up for me that are like plaguing education. And one you you hinted on, and it's crime is at the center of a lot of things, but it is because school is at the at the root of the problem and people don't see it that way. So when you say like, I don't think I'm going on a tangent, it's not really a tangent, not to me. I think that you're talking about the real issue. I think the problem to solve is why doesn't that issue hold high, right? Like, and I'm I'm guessing because it's not a quick fix. Right. So most people are looking for the quick fix or the things that makes them feel safe or the things that make them feel good. They don't look at the 10 to 15 year impact over time. Right. Like if we fix schools in 10 to 15 years, all of these problems are going to be alleviated because you're getting better people, literate people, skilled people who are coming in society to make it a better place. People who can make better choices, people who don't have to commit crimes because they can take care of themselves and do for their families, right? People are not looking at the end game. But what what would you say are some key legislative pieces that could have an impact on American education? Mm, that's a great question because now you're talking about federal. I think, number one, I think the federal government should provide significantly more money, money to education. Education is the responsibility of the state. The federal government said, you know what? Education is the responsibility of federal government. We're going to ask states and cities to, to, to supplement what we don't provide, but we'll provide the core of it. It'll put us in a position where we, as you know, local school districts, will become much more competitive. 
also think the federal government should own capital deficits when it comes to schools and facilities. We should make schools and facilities federal buildings that are up to par, up to code, latest, greatest standards, and invest in the actual facility itself in ways that we've never seen before. If the federal government owns you know, a bigger portion of the operating budget for schools and then also owns the facilities, now you're talking about quality wages for teachers, right? Because that will force us as, as states and as cities to be much more competitive. And once you can drive up the rate of the market, right, now you're talking about an industry that everybody wants to be a part of. You know, technology is changing the way we do business all across the country. It's impacting every industry from the creative economy to arts and culture to athletics. It's, 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 it's showing its face now. And we all knew this was coming, but the pandemic really sped up the impact technology is having on everything we do. So if we don't become much more innovative in our approach to education, how are we going to prepare American children all across the country to be ready for the next wave of what education will look like? You know, I, I think we can do some really amazing things if we really invest in education. But right now, based on where we are as government, especially when you're talking about federal politics, you, you, you're always looking at issues with other countries and possibility of going to war. You're looking at significant issues as it relates to climate change and the environment. And then, of course, nationally, you're always going to have conversation around guns as well as opioids. And those things are all problems. But schools are never they never make the top five lists, especially when you're talking about national politics. It's never is never at the forefront of any presidential campaign or congressional race or U.S. Senate race. The only time it's at the forefront is when you have those unfortunate situations where you have, you know, a mass shooting at the school and that shooting might have just happened to happen, you know, a, a couple months before an important primary. But if that's not what we're looking at, education is never a topic, a campaign initiative, and it never pulls high. And because of that, Politicians are always reluctant to invest in them because their thing is, what's the return on my investment? What's the return on my investment? And I think the only time I've seen education become somewhat of a topic is when Elizabeth Warren was running for president. And that's probably because she was a former school teacher. But other than that, never seen it become like a hot topic or something that people will pull on a national stage or talk about. Elizabeth Warren is a great example of somebody who made education a core part of her, her, her specific platform. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody <laughs> went to other candidates. It was like, well, this is where Elizabeth Warren is on education. Where are you? I'll get back to you. Right? Because nobody <laughs> is like, and this space is, is just not a, a prime topic. Locally, we give it a little more attention than what national politics do, but nationally. Mm-hmm. The other problem that I see that heavily plays education, reparations was, rep, reparations was a was a bigger topic than education. I'm not surprised, though. And if I could be cynical, like, because it has, it's attached to people thinking they're going to get money. Like, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm just thinking about the fact that if you go back to when we first learned about reparations and when reparations was first taught to us, like, when we think about the debt and what America owes the black people, right? Like, when it was first taught to us, you would never see it talked about in politics. And you would have never thought that there would be a day where people would be talking about reparations. Uh, I agree more than they're talking about education. So that's what made me think of that is like, look at how far we've come. And even even to the point where as though reparations is something that we're now talking about, but we still don't talk about education. Well, education. 
That was and the quality of education. No, great point because it's true. But in, in essence, yo, it's sad. It's sad because again, education, and we talk about this all the time on this podcast. Like invested in children, you're invested in your future. Yes. So again, we continue not to invest in education. What is the future going to look like? Another key thing, and you you would deal with this or are dealing with this more than a, a lot of a lot of different places, but really because you work in an urban city, is the segregation of the education system, which is insane, right? Like depending on your zip code or where you live determines the quality of education that you're going to get. How do we end this segregated education system in the United States when segregation ended in the 1960s? Simple. And this is going to be my shortest answer to the whole podcast. You just got to change how you fund schools, you know? Okay. Poor, poor people don't have a choice. Only people who have a choice is people with money. And that's why black people become in this like unique space because a lot of us are living in poverty, but a lot of us believe in public education. And for far too many parents, to, because their neighborhood school is not up to par, the only choice they feel like they get is, is a charter. And then it begins to create this controversy of public versus charter, which at the end of the day leaves us as the ones who lose, right? Like at mm-hmm. the end of the day, the children and communities of color and people who live in poverty, we're the ones that suffer the most. And so you, you, everybody can get a quality education if we change how schools are funded. And, and, and if, if, if no matter where you lived or what you experienced, you had access to a good school, that would change everything. The game would change. And until we do that, we're failing our children. It can't happen Absolutely. until we change our schools of funds. So then how do we make those demands, right? If you're in a person who's an underfunded school. So, I mean, there are parents now, right, who make national news all the time, but they're a certain type of parent, right? So you talk about these groups that are kind of led by these white suburban moms, whether plants or not, right? Advocating for certain things not to be taught to their kids or certain things not to happen in their school district. But yet, and still here we are years later with urban communities still fighting for fair funding in their communities. I mean, How do we empower to, parents and communities? You have to vote for people. And this is, again, back to your original question as it relates to the marriage between education and politics. You have to vote for people, Right. Who, when it's time to choose between funding for education or funding for blank, pick your blank, they're choosing education. Uh, The elders say that politics, the definition of politics is the allocation of scarce resources. That's what the elders say. And the key word in that whole phrase is scarce. Because if the resources are scarce, that means it's not enough for everybody. So what you do have to recognize is if we do decide to put money into education, right, that money has to come from somewhere. Now, don't get it twisted. That doesn't mean we have to take money from parks and recs. That's not what we're saying, right? What we can do is we can say, okay, if we're going to put more money into education, we can do something like what we did when we created the soda tax, right? That didn't take money from another department. What it did was it took money from people's pocket <laughs> because the soda tax is something that I personally am not the biggest fan of because I don't, um, I don't like who pays the brunt of a tax like that, right? But it's a, it's a con, I'm talking more about the concept because sometimes what we think is, is when we say that it's not enough money for, for, for everybody, that means that if we want new revenue to go to something, we got to come up with where that revenue comes from. And if I don't really have an appetite for this thing, whether it's education or police funding or, or, or you know, addressing the opioid crisis, whatever your thing may be, you know, if you don't really have an appetite for it, why would you spend the amount of time and research that's needed to determine 
where the revenue would come from. You wouldn't do it because you really don't care. It's not that important to you. And so, you know, we talk all the time about different ideas and initiatives and things that we can do and, and, and recommendations that we can make to provide more funding as it relates to education on a local level. But from a systemic perspective, the city of Philadelphia, you know, it'll, it'll be almost impossible for us to, to address a $6.6, $6.8 billion deficit alone. We need state government. We need federal government. We need folks to step in and say that this is an emergency like COVID. And, and we're going to put, no matter what it takes, we're going to put as many dollars and resources as we possibly can, not just to fix this problem, but to make sure that this is never a problem in American society and American culture again. And based off some of the stuff you're saying, I want to connect the dots for some of our listeners. So when you say to empower people, right, you got to put the right elected officials in office who will choose blank over blank. The reason why I wanted you to come on here today and I want to highlight you in the way I, in the way I am today is because I feel like you are a product of a young man who was built, who was taught, who was trained and who was poured into and then lifted up into a position to make a difference. Meaning... One of the great things that just happened recently, Kwanzaa just passed. This was the first time ever in Philadelphia that a Kenora was publicly displayed, right? In the city of Philadelphia. But if you didn't have the background you had, the upbringing you had, the mentors you had, and the people pouring into you, your mindset wouldn't be up to even do something like that and see how important that is for a group or a set of people in, in the city of Philadelphia. To make education your platform is because... I mean, for a number of reasons, right? Of course, working at Sankofa, but we can talk about Mr. Barry. Your dad's a teacher. So even having that and having that influence and then taking somebody like you and saying, hey, you're going to go be in politics and make these decisions that are going to have a positive impact on your community. So the reason why I want to connect that dot for some of our listeners is because we talk all the time about how teachers can recruit young people into the profession. But I also want people to understand what you pour into young people and how you teach young people and how you shape their mindsets is going to flow into who they're going to be when they get into specific professions. So it's going to be, are they going to come back and support their community? Are they going to see that as something important? Are they going to be connected to the community that they're a part of? All of that has an influence. And I feel like you are a product and you're an example of why that matters and why that is important. That's the ultimate compliment. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, it's the truth. You live, you're from, you're from your city. You live in your city, you're a product of public education in your city, and you're a product of HPCU. Then you came back to your city, worked in your city, and is trying to impact the budget, the laws, the crime, the communities in your city, right? You're still here. You didn't leave it. But all of that had to do with you being taught about being connected into your community, number one, and you being taught about lifting as you climb, like as you're coming up. Like it's your job to lift other people up with you, but it's also your job to train your replacement, which is why it's important for young people to have opportunity and have quality education and have access to programming. Like all of that stuff is super important. So the reason why I'm con I wanted to connect that dot for our listeners, because a lot of time we're in front of young people and people were just like, I'm teaching, I'm doing my job or I'm teaching the skill. I'm teaching math or I'm teaching reading. You are impacting a life. You are shaping a mind. And what this young person is going to be 10 to 15 years from now and how it's going to reflect on you when you old and crippled and you want somebody to, you know, pass legislation that's going, get your medication, your prescriptions, right? Or somebody's going to pass legislation that don't make you work to you 85, right? You want, these are the young people who are going to be able to make and impact those decisions. 
So for your elders right now, they're smiling and looking upon you. Like who knew 20, 30 years later that Isaiah Thomas would be supporting the Kwanzaa event as a councilman of Philadelphia, right? They didn't think that 30 years ago when they were sitting there teaching about Kwanzaa. They didn't think that 30 but years ago. Su- but they're not surprised. <laughs> of course, they're not surprised. And that's a good thing because they knew how they grounded you. They knew the foundation that they put into you. So I definitely wanted to connect those dots, but also lift you up and highlight you is that you are a product of what young people can be when your community pours into you and believes in you. And I, I, I mean, I'll just add this to what you're saying. I mean, I'm not the only one, right? Like there are other elected officials out here that are, you know, of the right mindset, come from the right neighborhoods, want to make education a top priority. And you know, care about things like what you talked about with Kwanzaa, for example. I, I couldn't have got that done without Councilmember Kendra Brooks, right? Like, that's my sister in city council. She fights for public education as much as I do, and she is spearheading that process as it relates to working with Mama Maisha and other people to be able to make that happen. And, you know, we understand what that means, and we want to give people as much access to, you know, spaces that your tax dollars pay for, right? Like, that's we don't own this stuff. I'm not the president of the whatever, whatever, whatever. It's a democracy, right? We work for the taxpayers of the city of Philadelphia. They pay our salary. You know, we're, we have a $6.2 billion budget and we need to be thinking about them every time we decide every single one of those dollars gets spent. Community first. I love it. As we wrap, tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for you. Like, what should we look forward to from Councilman Isaiah Thomas? What's coming up? I mean, we got a new mayor and new city council. So, you know, I'm happy to be in leadership. Uh, so I'm going to try to spend a lot of time supporting my colleagues. we got a lot of new members of the city council. Uh, so we want to make sure that that transition is as smooth as possible. New mayor, new council leadership, new members. You know, so that's, that's going to be my initial focus. I'm going to be turning 40 this year. So uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff just to kind of celebrate that. You know, I appreciate where I am in life and I appreciate my family and uh, all of the uh, different parties that I know are going to be coming together for that. I, I want my camp to be amazing. On your last uh, last night, we on Martin Luther King Day, we had our oratorical contest. And that was just an amazing event where we was able to give scholarships to young people based on their ability to use their voice to make a change. And, you know, those just, again, back to what you talked about earlier, just trying to make sure that we're providing as many opportunities and as many paths to success for the next generation. So those those initiatives that I've done every year, they're going to be my main focus. I want to grow them and make them bigger and better. Nothing crazy new on the horizon. I think it's important that you step back and give the mayor space and opportunity, especially a new mayor, kind of set their own platform and set their own agenda. And with this mayor being a black woman, you know, she's going to be uh, scrutinized and criticized in ways that nobody normally is, right? Because unfortunately, that's just how it is when you're a black woman especially in politics. So at the end of the day, I don't want to be a part of the problem as it relates to, you know, her transition and her vision on the direction that the city of Philadelphia should go in. But at the same time, right, we're the legislative branch of government and, you know, we exist because people expect checks and balances. So just trying to find that fine balance and making sure I'm doing my job and doing my part and not, you know, putting the mayor in a position where uh, we're being overly critical or I'm not giving her the opportunity to be successful because her success is our success. You know, outside of that, still coaching high school basketball, still, you know, advocating and fighting for things that I feel like we need for our young people and um, investing in other people's campaigns. I have a a candidate or two that's running for office, both locally as well as statewide. And, 
you know, I'm trying to fight for for people to be able to be in a position to lead, especially folks who I know that are like-minded and about the liberation of our people. Love that. I think so I've been to too long with this, so I want to apologize to the audience. I just, I'm talking to you and, you know. It's a, it's, it's a podcast. That's what we do. We talk. Okay. I mean, I know. I just <laughs> I feel like I'm extra long-winded. And I mean, your questions have been really great and you know, you're such an amazing, active listener. You just make me want to keep talking. Oh, thank you. No, it's a podcast. It's what we do. We talk. But we about to close out. But I want to give you the face and the floor before we close out. Just, this is a national, right? International podcast. What call to action do you have for people listening right now? I mean, I think my biggest call to action is to participate in the election this year and specifically focus on trying to put people in local as well as state and federal elections, all three branches of government, who's going to put education first and make education a top priority. That's what I do in city council. That's what I ask for in any candidate that I support. And I think it's important that we recognize until we fix the significant financial issues that we're facing, especially in urban and poor areas across the country, as it relates to how education is funded. Until that gets fixed, until we make the job an attractive job, until our facilities are of gold standard and are up to par, we're going to continue to struggle with all the other issues and ills that we have as a society. So, you know, my charge to people is get involved, whether you donate, knock a door, cast a vote, uh, organize a coffee clash, whatever you can do to make sure you're engaged and as many people as you impact are engaged in a political process. That's what I would recommend. And make sure you're informed as it relates to who you're voting for, especially when you're talking about the executive branch of government. Yes. And I was going to say, don't just wait till election day to show up. Start now. Start researching folks, find out when local elections are, find out who's in what seat, when they're supposed to get unseated, who are the candidates on the rise. Don't just wait. Start now. Now is the time. Now is also the time to put some pressure on your local governments because they're in session and stuff right there, like mm-hmm. around this yep. time, right? This, yep. Yes, yes. This is the, the time that months. laws... This is the time that laws are being written and legislation yes. is going before to get voted on. So... I'm telling you I guys mean, and, now. And every, everybody's going to be voting on their budget between now and July, right? Yep. Federal, state, and local government. This is budget time. So, you know, if so you- make sure you are pushing for more money in education. Then now is the time. Now is the time. Councilman, thank you so much for showing up and showing out today and coming thank to Building the Black Educator Pipeline. We really, you. really are excited. And I, just as a friend, you as my brother, I'm just so proud of you, brother. I really am. I appreciate it. And I'm proud of you and I'm happy for you. And I'm glad to be a part of this amazing platform you have. Thank you. Thank you. All right. My co-conspirators out there, we want to thank you for listening. You have been listening to Building the Black Educator Pipeline. It's a show hosted by the Center for Black Educator Development with the help of our partners here at Brightbeam. Subscribe where you listen to your favorite podcast, like, and share. We appreciate you guys. We'll see you next time. Peace.